think we all know the pedigree of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology when it comes to bird resources, and we at the ABA are excited to partner with the Cornell Lab of O to offer an amazing deal exclusive to ABA members. ABA members can now get a 15% discount to any new subscription to Cornell's amazing new Birds of the World resource that is applicable for three years. Birds of the World is a powerful resource that brings deep scholarly content from four celebrated works of ornithology into a single platform where birders can answer all their life history questions for every species of bird they could want. It is extraordinary. You can get more information at birdsoftheworld.org. Hello and welcome once more to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. I can see that you're confused, but Nate, I can hear you asking. It's sort of a a dull roar I can hear on the horizon. We just had an episode last week. We're not supposed to hear from you for another seven days. This is this is too much. It is too much bird content. I can't I can't handle all this bird content. Oh no, my friends, you're going to have to handle it. We are changing things up here at the American Birding Podcast Studios. We are going weekly. This is our gift to you in this troubling, confusing frustrating time. And I, I suppose it's a little generous of me to assume that what you want to hear right now is more of me talking about birds, but that's what you're getting. Congratulations. I'm sorry. All responses are good responses. But I had been wanting to go weekly for some time since, geez, since the beginning of this thing. I felt like there was enough bird content out there to do so. And since we have gotten actually pretty good at streamlining production, and since we're all at home and, and not traveling or otherwise doing other things, as a sort of a side note this week, I'd normally be at the biggest week in Ohio, getting my face good and melted off by arm's length warblers, but so it goes. I'm sure a lot of you would be there as well. I'm sorry. This, this will have to do in the interim. Uh, so, you know, anyway, we, we decided to try this weekly schedule, which means fun new bird stuff like last weeks this month in birding. Next week, I'm going to do a podcast book club with 10,000 Birds book reviewer Donna Shulman and birding magazine bird book editor, bird media editor, Frank Izagiri. So that will be fun. Lots more to come. I got lots of ideas I've been sitting on for a couple years that will finally see the light of day or rather whatever the audio equivalent of the light of day is. Look forward to that in the coming weeks, or don't, I guess. Um, I apologize in advance if that is not at all what you're looking forward to. Uh, on the show this week, another Cedar Waxwing story. Thanks to Karina Lee for sending that my way. You can hear that at the end. It's a good one. Please, please stick around for that. But first, Jennifer Ackerman is a great science communicator, the author of so many wonderful books like 2016's The Genius of Birds. She is, again, asking questions about bird cognition and delighting in the answers in her new book, The Bird Way. She joins me to talk all about it after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the first week of May 2020. We'll head to Arizona, where ABA Code 4 Crescent-Chested Warblers have taken up residence in two different canyons in the Chiricahua Mountains in Cochise County. In West Turkey Creek Canyon, there are at least two individuals who have reportedly been building a nest, which, if successful, would be the first recorded occurrence of breeding of this species in the ABA area. 
And there are fewer than 10 records of this bird described in Rare Birds of North America by Howell, Russell, and Lewington as a perula with a paint job in the ABA area, though it is presumed to be a breeder in the adjacent Sonora state of Mexico. And that population is migratory, so an overshooting migrant that found appropriate habitat in southeast Arizona is the likely providence. That's what previous birds have done. Uh, it could be an example of climate change causing Mexican birds to begin heading north across the southern border in numbers enough that they can begin breeding. There were no first records to report this week, but here's a quick rundown of birds of note. Michigan's second hooded oriole was in Ann Arbor. Manitoba's second worm-eating warbler was in Winnipeg. Virginia's second bells vireo was in Montgomery. And West Virginia's second white-faced ibis in Cabell County. A lot of second records, not any first records. Kind of weird. And of course, the little egret returned again to southern Maine for the sixth consecutive year this week, which is pretty amazing. That is about it for rarities in the ABA area for the period. For all the stuff we didn't mention here, please go to the Rare Bird Alert hub on the ABA website, uh, aba.org slash RBA. I have something up every Friday morning. You can also find lots of rare birds at the ABA's Rare Bird Alert Facebook group. That is facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare or on our rarity Twitter feed at ABA Bird Alert. Uh, my guest, Jennifer Ackerman, is the New York Times bestselling author and essayist. She wrote The Genius of Birds and a great many other science books. Her newest out this week is The Bird Way, a new look at how birds talk, work, play, parent, and think. It's less a sequel, feels more like a companion of that much-loved earlier book. It explores the mini-creative novel, bizarre ways in which birds approach problems that they face, and what that says about bird cognition and intelligence. Uh, Jennifer Welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, I, I hope you're. I hope you're managing well in this kind of odd time of uh, self isolation. Has it given you more time to kind of observe the birds in your in your backyard? Yes, definitely. Um, I, I swear the dawn song is more vociferous and <laughs> <laughs> boisterous than ever. Yeah. But that may just be that I'm paying attention and waking earlier. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm also uh, promoting a new book, so that takes me away from the birds, but, yeah. um, but you yeah. know, focusing on them in a different way. Yeah. So, you know, how long after completing The Genius of Birds did it take for you to want to come back to the questions of bird cognition? Almost instantly. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> writing The Genius of Birds just triggered so many interesting questions for me. And, you know, I really began to notice in my um, conversations with scientists and, um, and just my own observations that so many um, unusual and um, just bizarre behaviors in mm -hmm. birds were actually um, markers of exceptional intelligence. And that just made me want to you know, run right out into the field again and, yeah. and talk to more people. When I compare the genius of birds to this book, you know, maybe this is oversimplified. I, I sort of think of genius of birds of being about the psychology of birds and the bird way to be sort of about the sociology of birds, you know, how they interact with each other, how, you know, both among individuals and a species and between species, you know, there's definitely a little bit of that in genius, but this book is all about that. That sort of angle must have been your focus right off the bat. Definitely. Um, definitely interested in the social nature of birds. Um, and really, the book is, is about how intelligence shows up in mm -hmm. interesting and unusual bird behavior. Uh, so, the, you know, I think scientists have really begun to pay much closer attention to these kinds of, of 
behaviors that were once thought to be anomalous. And, yeah. and what they're finding is really kind of overturning our, our traditional views of, of how birds live and how they think. Yeah. So, so why, why do you think that is? Are, they, are people able to look deeper at these common species? Are there, there are more scientists with more questions that they want to ask? I mean, it seems like a lot of this research that you talk about in the book completely upends what we thought we knew about bird abilities in a way that, you know, is almost 180 from what the sort of prevailing theories were for a very, very long time. Um, are, are people just looking at birds closer now? I think there are a number of things going on. I think one of the things that's happening is that we are, um, scientists are overturning some of the traditional biases in their research. One of them is, um, you know, sensory prejudices. We sort Mm -hmm. of thought that um, the world that we humans see and smell and hear is the world experienced by birds. And um, that's just not the case. Um, We're we're beginning to understand that that birds experience the sensory world in a very different way than we do. Uh, For instance, and, you know, in their perception of color, there's some really fascinating research going on about that. And then there's also um, uh, an understanding that we've had a geographical bias on, um, on, you know, we've really based our, our assumptions of about birds on um, research that's been done in in uh, temperate areas in North America, and now that scientists are looking at you know tropical species and birds from other parts of the world, they're really seeing a very different pattern of behavior. And I think this is also true of of um, gender bias that you know until quite quite recently most ornithologists were men, and research really tended to focus on what male birds were up to. Right. And yeah, you know the part played by the female was was, um, I would say, downplayed or, or ignored. And now we need to realize that actually um, female birds shape a great deal of um, bird behavior and bird traits. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, it feels like the birds that we see in North America or even in Europe, where a lot of these researchers were, where this original research was taking place, are the anomalies. You know, there's a ton of really interesting stuff that's going on in the tropics and even in Australia, where you spend a lot of time in this book, that are sort of basal to bird behavior like this this is this may have been the original bird behavior and the birds that we see in north america and europe are are the ones that kind of deviated from that absolutely i think that the um so many of the patterns that we've you know we've assumed were the case everywhere um you know for instance um that you know the birds that they migrate, that they you know, pair up and breed for a short period of time, that males are the ones that advertise the territory for that brief period of breeding. That's really specialized behavior to the northern temperate regions, and it's atypical of the bird world at large. Yeah, yeah I mean, you spend a lot of time in Australia, described in the book as a, a land of anomalies for, for good reason. Um, you know, so much of the, the life there uh, both plant and animal is completely unique to anywhere else in the world. Uh, so, what is looking at these sort of extraordinary behaviors of these these bowerbirds and and fairy wrens and honey eaters tell us about the the abilities or or maybe even the potentials of birders of birds? Excuse me, here in North America. Well, lots of things. Um, one of my favorite birds that I explored in Australia with a young scientist named Jessica McLaughlin was the Australian. Uh, the new sorry New Holland honey eater of mm-hmm. Australia, and, and this is a bird that has um, an alarm call with um, as many as ninety six elements. <laughs> so this bird is 
communicating a tremendous amount in a single call. And it's um, uh, able to communicate what kind of predator is coming, where it's coming from, how fast it's flying, the direction it's flying, you know, when you should, when a bird should go into hiding and when it's okay to come out again. So there's all of this information packed into this alarm call. And it's really raising the issue or the question of, um, you know, what are we missing in um, bird communication, bird calls? This is just one example. And this young researcher has really studied this question brilliantly. And I think she's opened a window um, onto our, you know, perceptions about, about what's possible in bird communication and this is certainly one of those uh one of those projects that sort of hits to a lot of the elements you were talking about earlier and you know not only is the new holland honey eater sort of a common bird in a lot of parts or, you know where it's present in australia this is like a a bird that a lot of people are very familiar with doing things that we wouldn't have even imagined and also um it's a, a young woman researcher who is looking at these things from a really creative way there's so much of that going on throughout this book. Uh, it must have been, you know, really gratifying to be able to find these stories and and be able to tell them uh, in this book. Yeah, it really was exciting. I mean, and one of the um, the really fascinating aspects of of this that um, that I talked about with researchers a lot in Australia was the question of um, female song and mm-hmm. you know what we've learned about it from. Australia. And, you know, that if you tell a, an Australian that, you know, well, most it's mostly males that have very complex song, they'll roll their eyes and say, <laughs> well, not here. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the duetting that the bird song in Australia, just to begin with, is just mind blowing. It's so astonishing that the the, um, the range and the complexity and the resonance of the bird song yeah. there. I, I was just bowled over by the, the, the pied butcher bird with its, you know, incredible nocturnal song that's just so haunting and so beautiful. It's been, you know, woven into musical compositions by professional composers. And <laughs> and then, you know, the, one of my favorite experiences was, um, was with the lyre bird. Yeah. Um, and, you know, actually, you know, finding one in the in the Tulangi rainforest and in um, New South Wales and Australia and just stopping and listening to this bird's incredible, fantastical mix of um, of mimicked songs from the forest and its own like weird vocalizations. I had a wonderful um, friend with me who's a wildlife sound recording specialist named Andrew Skiok. And we just stood together and he could rattle off, you know, instantly what the bird was mimicking. And it was just wonderful to have him by my side as a, as a guide for this experience. But um, but the scientists who are studying the lyrebirds say, you know, it's not just the male displaying um, who has this very complex song. It's it's females, too, that they're mm-hmm. doing as much singing as males. Uh, it's just a very different kind of song. Females sing uh songs with a lot more uh, mimicked alarm calls in them yeah, and they think that that's because it's a you know, protective mechanism um when when the female and the female does all of the the caretaking of the young so she's in charge of protecting the nest so it makes sense that she would have honed her singing skills in that direction yeah one of the things that i find super fascinating about uh, australian birds and you know this is true of of everywhere 
Um, as a as a person who kind of was raised on the David Attenborough documentaries, the perception that a lot of these things are happening in distant rainforests or far away from where humans live is one that uh, I've really had to kind of push against as I've grown up because there is so much amazing things happening within a very close proximity to to where people live. The the brush turkey story in the book was one that really brought this home to me, but the lyrebird as well. Um, to I keep thinking of brush turkey as this really, and and this is probably the way it was thought of for a very long time, as this this deep rainforest bird, this bird that is very difficult to find. And here they are in suburban Brisbane, like just wandering around like common grackles around here, um, doing these extraordinary things in full view of of everyone, not just the researchers studying them, but, but but you know regular people walking around. Absolutely. I saw a number of them. And, you know, they really are. They're, they're everywhere in the suburbs and they build their mounds in people's driveways <laughs> and in their backyards. And, and this was not long ago. This was a strictly a rainforest bird. And mm-hmm. um, one of the researchers that I worked with in Australia, um, who's at Griffiths University, is Daryl Jones, who, who's uh, studies the brush turkey, and he began studying this bird. He had to go to you know New Guinea and 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 the far <laughs> northern reaches of um, Australia to find it. And now this bird is just everywhere. And it is so bizarre how it raises its young. It's um, it really does take your breath away. That <laughs> that first of all that the bird builds this the male bird builds this enormous mound, and um, and he uses it as a natural incubator. And, um, you know, he piles up, it's basically a huge compost heap. And he mm-hmm. piles uh, mud and leafy debris into it. And, and these things can be just massive, many times the size of a car. And the, the, yeah. the, the yeah. astonishing thing is that the brush turkey maintains it at a constant temperature that's a perfect incubation temperature for its eggs. And it tests the temperature by excavating some of the material, sticking its beak into the center and taking the temperature. And then it will either remove or add more compost material to maintain that constant temperature. So really a remarkable way of, um, of breeding that, that I think is, is, you know, fairly unique in the bird world. There are other megapodes like the brush turkey, but it's just a, um, a wild and weird way of, of raising your young. Yeah. Yeah. And the part that that absolutely floored me was the the fact that when the chicks hatch, they spend the first week of their life trying to excavate themselves from these car sized mounds of vegetation. And then when they get out, the parent could not be bothered to do anything with them. Like they are completely on their own to the extent that, you know, 97 percent of them, I think you said, do not even make it through the first I may have been week, month, not very long. Right. It's, it's such a such a strange way for a bird to reproduce. It reminds me a bit of um, opossums, which as a marsupial, also very strange. Um, you know, they're just working on volume. <laughs> so many chicks that eventually some of them are going to make it just by randomness. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly what's happening with the brush turkey. I mean, something must be working because their populations right. are doing very well. But I think about these poor little chicks, you know, they, they hatch into this... <laughs> suffocating world you know they're really entombed in a way and they and they lie on their backs and they, they scrape um with upward with their legs 
-hmm. And then, yeah, they pop out of the top of the mound and, you know, no parental care whatsoever. If their dad is there, chances are he's going to boot them right off the the top of the mound into the brush. (laughs) And, you know, fortunately, as you point out, they're the most uh, precocial chicks of really of any bird species. So they can instantly get up, fend for themselves, run, feed and fly. And um, they really have to because um, because there are just a tremendous number of predators. And most of them do get eaten, but some some numbers survive and, and they seem to be, you know, doubling their their population uh, pretty quickly. So remarkable. it's really amazing. Yeah. Was there an experience that you had with any of the birds in the book that just absolutely floored you? And I, and I realize this might be sort of akin to asking which of your children is your favorite, but um Maybe you can pick one out that was just truly extraordinary to you. Yes. Um, I would have to say, uh, when people ask me, you know, what is your favorite bird? I used to Mm -hmm. say the chickadee because I really do love the chickadee and it's an incredibly smart bird and it has Mm -hmm. tremendous um, communication capabilities, but it has a competitor now, which is the key of New Zealand. Oh, right. Yeah. the, The most playful birds on the planet and they are just astonishing birds in part because they're so bold they're just fearless and funny and they're just like small children so i went to um the kia lab at the meserly institute in southern austria uh, austria and um i met there with uh raul schwing who studies these birds and they have a big aviary there with uh, about 30 kia and they let me come into the aviary and and be with the birds. But they said first that I had to strip down everything that I was wearing, like (laughs) my wrist, my my watch, my rings, my earrings, everything I could get rid of because the the birds will go after them. And so I thought, okay, well, I go in there and they literally flock to you like little children. And they just start to, you know, they hop up on your shoulder and they hop up into your to your head and they'll start to clip at your hair like you know they were bulbers and yeah it's like a kin- if a kindergarten class had wings <laughs> exactly and i i looked down at my sneakers and they are busily like undoing them and sh- shredding the ends of them <laughs> they're so curious and so bold and and they have so many um wonderful qualities and i think you know one of them is that they is that they do play pretty much nonstop. And it's not just the juveniles, it's also the adults. Um, they, they're, they're just, you know, constantly tussling and roughhousing and locking beaks and just rolling over each other and throwing sticks in the air. It's just so much fun to watch. Um, and I think that that fascinating thing is that they they use play as a um way of maintaining peace in their flocks and so and you know instead of having a a hierarchy based on fighting the way that ravens do for instance kia um use play instead and they just engage each other in these these shenanigans which are um really a hoot to watch yeah i imagine i what i found especially fascinating about it was the the vocalization that they make the play call that if you play it to a group of kia they will immediately start playing it's like it's like laughter it's like the the feeling that you know you get if you are in a group of people who are laughing and uh, you're in on the joke obviously but um yeah it puts you in a good mood it releases those endorphins it makes you feel you know happy and it feels like that sort of thing is happening with kia as well which is a really pretty remarkable 
insight when they when they figure that out. Yeah, it's fascinating, and it really is contagious. Um, Rao Schwing, who did the work on this, and went in. in um, New Zealand in the Alps, the Southern Alps, where these birds actually live, he <laughs> set up um, playback calls mm -hmm. of the key's play call. And, you know, a bird would, a uh, key would just be minding its business, you know, poking around. And then it would hear this playback call of this, what they call a, you know, a play, a play warble is really what it is. And the bird would just like drop everything it was doing, just burst into play. I mean, just completely silly play. <laughs> And, um, and and it would play as long as the playback call was played. So it was literally responding. And as soon as the play call stopped, it would stop. And um, <laughs> this, it, it's a trigger and it's very contagious. And it really is, um, I think, may hold a key to the, the evolution of our own laughter and, you know, the kinds of, of um, effects that it has on, on our, as you described on our you know states of mind yeah it is really interesting how if you are in a group of people and they are laughing or they are generally in a in a good mood like that you're inclined to find things funny that you might otherwise not find funny like in a uh, a comedy club or whatever because you're kind of primed for that behavior um it does sort of feel like that is perhaps happening with kia as well it's it's uh, it's it's an it's an amazing it's an amazing thing, and I, I can totally understand why you devoted uh, a fair bit of the the book to to that you know really remarkable bird. Yes, I couldn't resist. It's, yeah, yeah. They also they are they are also great um, collaborators. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I observed was they they have a um, capacity to uh, to work together on things on problem solving. And, um, one of the great experiments that Ralph Schwing did with them was to, to set up a, a platform with, um, four chains that needed to be pulled at the same time in order for treats to drop down from the platform and, and the Kia could all get the treats. So these birds learned very quickly that they all four, four, each one with a different chain had to pull simultaneously mm -hmm. to get the treats. And they were able to, to, do that, um, you know, really quickly. They're incredibly fast learners. I think they're, you know, really one of the, the, the brilliant birds on the planet. So yeah, I spent, I spent a fair amount of time talking about them and I just couldn't resist it. Yeah. The, the coordination required to do that is, um, is pretty remarkable. Pretty amazing. Was there a bird whose behavior you found fascinating, but you just weren't able to fit it into the final version of the book? Oh, there's so many. Um, <laughs> Well, you know, it's it's it is the nature of this work that um, that one thread leads to another. I mean, yeah. you know, we have more than ten thousand species of birds in the world, and I think one of the things that I learned is that, you know, every species is different. Every individual within every species is different. Um, you know, birds are very idiosyncratic, and we tend to sort of lump them into to you know group behaviors like oh well this kind this family of birds acts this way and and um this species is does this for its foraging pattern or its breeding but it's not true and there's so much variation uh from species to species within a family and then from individual to individual within a species um and i was fascinated by this idea that you know the birds really do have culture and um you know some of the i i just could only scratch the surface of some of the the really great stories with um you know with bowerbirds and and um yeah. uh and other species that 
have, um, you know, particular ways of transmitting uh, styles of bower buildings, uh, you know, styles of song, over gener- styles of toolmaking, um, over generations. And uh, yeah, so there's a there's a big, rich world out there. And, um, you know, I think I'm feeling another book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no shortage. You make it, make it a series of, uh, yeah, where, where, would you, where would you go next? Like, what are the different, oh my God, yeah, as you say, there's so many different angles to explore um, and so many different stories to tell. Um, are there any birds that are out there that just, you know, maybe don't quite measure up? Like maybe instead of the genius of birds, there's birds that are sort of the opposite. <laughs> or do they all, or do they really all have these sort of amazing little aspects of their biology that you could put down a chapter on about them? Yes. Well, you know, in the genius of birds, I, I talk about the, um, there is a scientist named Louis Lefebvre who invented the first scale of bird intelligence. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the corvids and the parrots were at the top and, well, what were at the bottom? It was quail and emus and ostriches. But as I point out, um, it's really just one measure of bird intelligence. And he used innovative behavior as his measure. Mm-hmm. It was actually the the kernel of the the new book, which is this idea that innovative, unusual behavior is a sign of intelligence. But that you look at the birds at the bottom of the scale, and they're really interesting, too. I mean, the emu and its way of parenting, you know, fathers, it's pretty much father's only care. Mm -hmm. And see, when I was in Australia, you see these emus with, you know, emu dads with 16 little chicks, you know, following. (laughs) It's, it's just, so interesting. Um, so even birds that are you know, considered so-called you know, primitive or they have smaller relative brain size, they're also fascinating. And, um, you know, and I think what's so interesting to me is just that the revelations seem to be coming fast and furious. And, and yes. one of them, I talked about getting over the, the biases that we've had in research, but also we just have fantastic new tools. And, yeah. um, you know, I think that's part of the reason that we're beginning to see uh, some real, you know, sort of new information come out uh, that we have everything from these, you know, GPS data loggers that we can put on little backpacks and attach them to migrating animals um, like they did with the, the northern bald ibises recently and, uh, you know, learned that they actually have this incredible form of turn taking when they're doing their long ruling migrations there's you know a very equal distribution of the workload of the first bird cutting the wind you know takes there's a, a, a trade-off of, of leading and following positions that's very egalitarian and then um you know we have this these camera traps and these high-speed videos that are revealing uh things that we can't see that are happening in the wild and you know, one of the the great examples that pops to mind is the is the uh, mannequin and what we've learned about its you know acrobatic displays. And a really classic example of that is the black mannequin. You look at it in a real time video, it, its display, and it looks like it's just hopping up and down. Very simple, repetitive movement. But you you take a high speed video, slow it down, and when people see that, their jaws just drop. Because yeah. it's very complex, backward somersault, 360 degree somersault that it's doing each in each of those little hops. It's just mm-hmm. doing it so quick you can't see it. 
So, you know, some of these behaviors are just being um, brought to light because of this really fantastic new technology. It is perhaps one of the great ironies of uh, of studying birds that we are we have all these sort of innovative ways to look at to study these birds, as you mentioned. But at the same time, you know, we are seeing bird populations decline by such a huge number. Um, it's it's so unfortunate that those two things are sort of happening simultaneously. As you mentioned, sort of in the in the afterword of the book, you talk about how these looking at the the abilities of birds to sort of adapt to their habitats, their environments, and the, specifically the changing environment is sort of a it's sort of a light at the end of all of this. You know, there we do see the abilities of birds. Perhaps they're much more uh, able to uh, adapt to a changing world than we perhaps give them credit for. At least, you know, those of us who love them have to hope so. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm with you on the, the, the tragedy of the, the scale of loss is just unavoidable. I mean, you know, just the sheer numbers and also the, um, the loss of a species that particularly that are dependent on specialized niches in, mm-hmm. in the world. Um, but I did find some cause for hope in this book. And, and part of it is that, you know, birds are are very good at cooperation and collaboration. I think we have a lot to learn from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can adapt to, you know, hardship like like food shortages. And, and they do, sh- some of them show signs of adjusting to, to climate change, and especially birds that have this knack for, for very innovative or novel behavior. So, um, you know, I, I do feel that birds have a way of telling us or can tell us about what it takes to succeed in the world, you know, especially under difficult circumstances. So there, you know, there, there's cause for hope. And, you know, some birds are, the populations are rising. It's, it's very surprising, but, but good to see. And, and I have to say during this time, I've been, you know, collecting stories from people around the world about, you know, what's happening now that the human activity has quieted a little, uh, what's happening with the birds. And, you know, it's very anecdotal, but it is encouraging to see how quickly birds seem to be moving back into spaces that were prohibited from, you know, either because of intense human activity or, or noise or um, whatever the case may be. I, I, um, I have friends in Australia who said that flocks of spine-tailed swifts are up and they, they're hmm. major numbers of fairy wrens at their bird baths and one camp college campus glossy black cockatoos moved in (laughs) so it's um, you know you know that kind of activity is is encouraging to see jennifer ackerman thank you so much we didn't even get to like the cuckoos and the fairy wren stuff which i would had a question out and i just found absolutely fascinating but i'll just i'll just tease it for people who are interested in the book uh jennifer ackerman's new book the bird way a new look at how birds talk work play parent and think is out this week uh, unfortunately you you can't get it at a bookstore but that shouldn't stop you there are many online sellers including the one named after the south american rainforest but also our partners at beauty books and i expect your local bookseller could get it for you if you asked, it is a fantastic read uh, well worth your time and just as an aside uh the june 2020 issue of birding features an interview with jennifer ackerman so it's all all ackerman all the time here at the aba so jennifer thank you so much for joining me this was a lot of fun thank you i really enjoyed it when i was an environmental educator i spent one summer teaching five and six year olds at the vermont institute for natural science 
I taught a variety of nature programs that summer, but one perk of attending summer camp at a raptor rehab center is the kids could visit the bird exhibits whenever they wanted. In addition to the raptor ambassadors and baby bird rehab patients, I made a point to bring the kids to the small songbird exhibit so they could observe up close the birds they might see in their backyards at home. The small aviary housed a couple blue jays, cardinals, and several cedar waxwings. While most kids immediately recognized the distinctive blue and red birds, I knew most had never seen a waxwing before, and I decided to give them a challenge. If anyone could correctly identify a cedar waxwing on the Raptor Center property, I would buy them any candy bar of their choice. Now, I've learned that most five-year-olds have a hard time seeing details that aren't in their immediate vicinity. Truthfully, I hardly expected anyone in the group to even remember the challenge, let alone correctly identify a waxwing among the many passerines that flit about the tree canopies of the rehab center grounds. By the end of the week, even I had completely forgotten about the waxwings. But, sure enough, I was leading the group on a walk, and a girl in the back ran up to me exclaiming, I saw it! I saw the bird! We doubled back to a small stand of trees with bright red berries growing on them, and I knew at once that I would be stopping at the store on my way home from work. A congregation of cedar waxwings were happily perched, picking berries and peering down at us from among the tree branches. Identifying birds without binoculars is a difficult task for any adult, never mind a human still learning to tie her own shoes. And her candy bar of choice? A sugar daddy, king size. I figured that even a king-sized candy bar was a small price to pay for encouraging closer observation of, who knows, maybe a spark bird for the next generation of young birders. Thank you so much, Karina Lee. What a great cedar waxwing story. If you have a waxwing story you'd like to send to me to use right here on this podcast, record that sucker in the voice memo app on your phone, send the file over to podcast.aba.org. I would love to feature it here. These have been fun. Once again, podcast.aba.org. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy what we're doing here, please consider supporting us by joining the ABA. You get lots of great bird content, both here at the podcast, but also in our amazing magazines. You can get discounts to our partners like Beauty of Books and that special deal for a subscription to Cornell's new Birds of the World, which is... I don't have to tell you, an unbelievable resource. Join the ABA, get that code, then get the discount. I wanna make a special shout out to Lisa Amentia of Vista, California, Eric Warren of Longmeadow, Massachusetts, Elizabeth Horikoshi of Cedar Park, Texas, and the appropriately named Michael Hawk of San Jose, California. I'm gonna assume that's your real name and not just a name you used to sign up to the ABA, either one it's pretty cool. The second one, probably slightly less cool, but still, uh, that's very ambitious. All of whom joined the ABA recently and noted this podcast as a reason. Thank you so much and welcome or welcome back to the ABA. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who is fascinated, as we all are, by those rambunctious New Zealand parrots and their famous ability to destroy rental cars. But he wonders if they could tackle a mid-sized South Korean sedan. In short, could a Kia Kia Kia? Technical production is by John Lowry, who wonders whether a Swedish modular version of that South Korean mid-sized car would fare any better. Could a Kia Kia and a Kia Kia? Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who wonder if it matters if the South Korean mid-sized car belongs to a Hawaiian 
Honey Creeper. Stay with me here. Could a Kia Key and a Kiki Key is a Kia Kia? You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at aba. To the questions we posed above, we offer a simple answer. We. I'm Nate Swick. Stay healthy, folks. Thanks for listening. See you next week.